Krishna. Well, that's all right. Reminds me of what they say in Brazil. They say Brazil's got everything, but nothing works. <laughs> So it's uh, it's very encouraging, very enlivening to see so many sincere souls here on a, a weeknight, Friday night, celebrate the appearance of Lord Chaitanya. Uh, I'd like to begin with a, a story about Prabhupada's visit to Gainesville, Florida. Nineteen seventy one. No volume? Can you all hear back there? Yes. Was it? I think it's all there. In 1971, which is a, as a college graduate I know was 37 years ago. In 1971, Prabhupada came to Gainesville, Florida. Uh, he was uh, invited by the university to come and lecture there. This was arranged by my godmother, Ramanandra. And when Prabhupada arrived, in those days there was no, there was no commercial uh, air traffic to Gainesville. So Prabhupada was coming from New York City. He couldn't fly to, so he had to fly to Atlanta and then change planes and fly to Jacksonville, Florida, and then drive about an hour and a half to Gainesville. So by the time he got there, he felt he was in a very remote place. Since he had to take, you know, two flights and then drive an hour and a half. And when I was there, of course, I was, that was 1971, so I, of course, and Yossi's never really revealed their age. <laughs> But actually, I was 22. I was 22 once. I wasn't born this way. <laughs> so I was 22 years old, and I was a Rihasta householder. And I was the first temple president in Gainesville, Florida. So as a 22-year-old American, I thought, I'm in the center of the universe. I'm in an American college town. And... Uh, so, when Prabhupada came there, the first thing he said was, it's so nice to see so many young boys and girls chanting Hare Krishna in such a remote place. Gainesville, Florida. And then he said, in such a remote place, so far from the birthplace of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And so, it's interesting because within Prabhupada's mind, his spiritual geography that really the center of the world is the place where Lord Chaitanya appeared. Because Lord Chaitanya is the appearance of Krishna in this age. So, um, it is an extraordinary fact about our own lives that we have all taken birth uh, so much within the historical horizon so close to the appearance of Krishna in this world 
so that the appearance of Lord Chaitanya in uh, Navadweep, West Bengal, India, in 1486, according to our calendar, which is now uh, 522 years ago. I think, I think for the next 10,000 years, we will say that Lord Chaitanya appeared about 500 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Saying that Lord Chaitanya appeared 500 years ago is no longer a calculation. It's just part of our philosophy now. <laughs> anyway, Lord Chaitanya appeared about 522, well, 522 years ago today, exactly 522 years ago. And he's Krishna himself. He's Krishna himself. And so to be... And Lord Chaitanya, of course, stayed in this, in this world for 48 years, which means he left this world, let's see, do the math, in 1534. So, uh, that's how many years ago? What is uh, 522 minus 48? 74. Is that right? Yes, 474 years ago. So anyway, that's very close. When we talk about Krishna appearing thousands of years ago and so many events in the Vedic literature, Puranas, Nitihasa, things occurring millions of years ago, things occurring on different planets. So in the context, within the, within the time frame of this gigantic Vedic culture, Lord Chaitanya appeared very, very recently. In fact, Carl Sagan, uh, who, you know, the Cornell professor had a TV show on science, once remarked that of all the ancient uh, cosmologies that we find in world civilizations, the only one which has a, a magnitude equal to or greater than modern science in terms of how big the universe really is and how much there really is out there, of course, is from this Vedic culture. So we deal with huge time frames. We deal with concepts like trillions of universes and uh, huge amounts of time, cyclical time and so on. So if you consider the context, the, the picture that we're dealing with, Lord Chaitanya appeared very, very, very recently, squarely within uh, the boundaries of, of, his, of modern historiography. So... Earlier this, I mean, this morning we discussed. I, I sort of reviewed the uh, the history of Western civilization and also India and other places about 500 years ago to see how Lord Chaitanya sort of was a catalyst that triggered uh, very powerful transformations in the world as we know it. The age of discovery, the invention of the printing press, the scientific revolution, the uh, the collapse of of church hegemony in Western civilization, which actually allowed, which created the possibility of religious freedom, which eventually emerged and so on. The Anyway, I won't do that whole thing again. I'll do something else here to keep myself awake. But, uh, so for those who don't know so much about it, perhaps I'll just go back to some of the basics, which I think hopefully will be interesting to everyone. And that is that... The Vedic civilization and these ancient texts in Sanskrit acknowledge that God, the creator of this and many other universes and the source of everything, God can and does appear within this world. 
Sorry, kid. <laughs> You've just been ejected from the game. So, now, for example, here in our temple, we have deities on the altar. And in India, this is extremely common. Uh, really, it's quite central to what is known as Hinduism to have a mandir or a temple, a shrine. In that mandir, there will always be an altar. And on that altar, there will be some visible form of uh, God or some representative of God or whatever. Either a guru or a devata or whatever. Now, as we know, this particular point of the appearance of divine power, the appearance of God or some form or expansion or manifestation or representation of God in a visible form or even the appearance of God himself in this world in a visible form is one of the most controversial points of uh, this great spiritual civilization coming from South Asia is one of the most controversial points in the Western world because the Western world of course for many many centuries uh, was culturally governed by uh, religious ideas that came from the Middle East uh, the Old Testament, the New Testament and so on and what we find is actually if you look at the way people in different parts of the world have thought about God or thought about the creation of this world or thought about the relationship between the creation and the creator if you look at world civilization and that, what you find is that in parts of the world such as India and Europe in parts of the world that develop very powerful systematic philosophical traditions there was more flexibility more agility uh, and more creativity in the way they thought about the nature of existence. Now, in, and this is going to, I mean, this is actually going somewhere. I'm not just kind of like in a, an academic reverie here. So, or am I? <laughs> anyway, my doctor is here in Itai, so because if it gets really bad, he'll, he'll intervene. <laughs> So, that branch of philosophy that concerns itself with the nature of existence is called ontology. And what we find is, I think to be absolutely impartial, that most parts of the world did not develop independently, systematically, over a sustained period of intellectual history, a... Uh, an ontological understanding. In other words, what is, so that the, the notion that the creator can appear in the creation, if someone argues that categorically the creator cannot appear in the creation, that sounds funny. Doesn't sound right. And so you have to ask questions like what is the nature of matter? Just like in modern physics, you take something which appears to be very simple and apparent, like matter, you know, earth, water, and so on, and you say, well, what is it really? Now, both modern physics and ancient spiritual texts both agree that in the case of matter, appearances are deceiving. Because as we know from modern science, 
the, the, in a sense, the phenomenological world that presents itself to us, the world that we perceive directly through our senses, you know, like that's a yellow wall and, and this is a silver microphone head and so on. There's some truth to that, but, uh, but actually there is a, to use Aristotle's word, there is a substance. There is something standing beneath, substance. There's something standing beneath this. There's, there's another reality to it. A, a reality which is described, for example, by physics. So in the same way, Krishna teaches us in the Bhagavad Gita that even, that there is also a metaphysical reality. There is a metaphysical reality to the world. Now, consider, for example, that hopefully we all believe in justice. Just to give an example. And justice is roughly the idea that everyone equally should get what they truly do. Everyone should get what they deserve according to objective principles. Fair principles. Now, justice is not a physical object. Justice is a concept and a metaphysical force in the world. And yet we all have a very strong sense of justice. And we feel that justice ultimately stands above mere physical facts. To give an example, let's say someone steals from another person. If someone steals from another person, you can say that's just a physical fact. That, you know, you can describe it as one person walked over here, picked something up and took it away. So a, you could give a purely physical description of it in which you wouldn't find justice. But then you bring in this higher principle of justice and suddenly you say it was a bad act. It was a criminal act. It was an unjust act. So what I mean to say is we agree that there are metaphysical principles like justice or like equality which actually stand above and ultimately govern physical facts. So in the same way, Krishna says that standing above the mere existence of material things at any level, atomic or subatomic or just macro or whatever, there is a very important phys metaphysical fact which stands above all the physical facts. And that is, that metaphysical fact is that everything that exists is the energy that comes of a supreme source. There is a supreme conscious source and all physical things emanate from that source. And therefore, if we again systematically study the relationship between the creator and the created, not simply sort of being like superstitious or spook, like, oh my God, you're worshiping a material thing. You know, that's not simply dealing with appearances, but going beneath that to look at the ultimate meanings of things. And if we understand, as we find in Vedanta, as we find in Bhagavad Gita, and as we find actually in classical Greek and Roman philosophy, often, that because this world is an emanation, it comes from a supreme source, like sunshine comes from the sun. Therefore, there is a sense in which the creator and the created are one. They're not... If you study the relationship between the sun, the sun globe, and the sunshine, on the one hand, they're one. It's just... It's one thing, the sun shining. And yet, if you look like an in an astronomy textbook, one of those cutaway drawings of the, of, the, of the system, the sun. The sun is one thing, the sunshine is something else. And yet, so, so it's one, it's just the sun shining, and it's different because it's the sun globe 
and the sun shine. So, this analogy is given in the Bhagavad Gita, it's given by Plato uh, about 2400 years ago, that the relationship between the creator and the created is something like the relationship between the sun and the sunshine, in that we are the energy, we are the sunshine, and God is the sun. And therefore, there is a oneness, even as there is a distinction. But because there is an ontological, existential oneness, therefore, we, for example, we say things like, on a sunny day, the sun feels good. And if someone corrects you and says, that's not true, the sunshine feels good, you know, it, it's sort of like an obnoxiously fussy distinction. <laughs> because there's a sense in which the sunshine is the sun. You're feeling the sun by feeling. So in the same way, as the sun appears in its own sunshine, God appears in his own energy. And therefore, Krishna says in the Gita that a true yogi is one who sees me everywhere. The one who sees me everywhere and sees everything in me. So... Because of this sophisticated relationship between the Creator and the created, there is the possibility that God, at His own discretion, may choose particular physical objects as uh, locations where He wishes to manifest Himself in a more powerful way so that human beings can practice spirituality. Because the fact that God is everywhere the fact that God is everywhere uh, is nice. It, for example, like there are radio waves everywhere, but if you haven't got a radio, you're not going to be able to dance to the music. So radio waves, are, or for example, let's say there, there's internet signals everywhere, but if you haven't got the password, you just you know you just sort of sit there and punch your computer. So so the idea is that God is everywhere. But yoga means that you sort of connect. You, you find some way to receive that transmission. Now, Krishna chooses to appear in certain forms in order to facilitate the practice of spirituality. God has chosen a particular part of his creation to sort of, you might say, exaggerate his presence so it becomes obvious so that people who are now not in the highest consciousness can actually get a handle on it and practice spirituality. Which is a very nice thing to do. I mean, give a round of applause to God for that. So now Krishna, Krishna not only does that, but he also personally comes. Now some people say that God is so great and we are so small that, you know, why would God want to hang out in a dump like this? <laughs> so, but God comes. Why? I mean, th there are notions, like for example, in certain religions, the name of God is considered so holy that you can't pronounce it. <laughs> in, in some religions, God is considered, like, like you, you can't show any form of God. There, there should be no visual art which in any way represents God or in any way even attempts to show the glory of God. So, there have been like, simply prohibitions on visual art. In the Islamic world, for example, calligraphy was developed, I mean, they had the, the, the greatest development of calligraphy, which means like writing real fancy. Because that's all they could do. I mean, in, in Islamic civilization, like every civilization, a certain percentage of the people are naturally artists. 
and they needed an outlet. And so the, everyone said, okay, you can do calligraphy. So they sort of had to deal with what they, were, what, what they had. So, so there, are these, there are these notions that God is so great, that God is so holy, that, you, that there's this gulf of separation, these heavily dualistic, these heavily dualistic systems where you can't even say God's name and no one can even no one in any way can try to visually depict God or even imagine such a thing. And then on the other extreme, there are monistic systems that deny what we all know is true. Namely, there are differences in the world. For example, say everything is one. Uh, now, there is difference, but there's also oneness. So, so Krishna, we are the children, you could say, of God. This is this movement is not the children of God, anyway. <laughs> but this, we are all children of God. In fact, Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, "Pitaha Masya Jagato." I'm the father of this universe. Mata and the mother, and the mother. It's not it's, Krishna's. I'm the father. I'm the mother. I'm the grandfather, and so on. So, if you consider the... Let's say, take a parent. Take a parent, take the little child. In political terms, we usually don't talk about uh, parent-child relations as political, but in political terms, all the power is with the parent, not the infant. All the ability, you know, the parents to do things in the world, the child is helpless. And yet, out of love, it's not that because of some significant political or uh, intellectual advantage, the parents don't want to go and see their children. And that would be absurd. So in the same way, whatever our condition at the present time, whatever our condition, Krishna or God loves us very much and wants to come and see us. He actually wants to... Of course, God can see everything at every moment. But Krishna actually wants to come and just be with us and he wants to personally act in this world so that it can be recorded and documented and for generations afterward people can relate to God. I mean, think of it. Adults all over the world talk like babies when they're talking to their babies. There's a song by Janet Dean called Baby Talk. Hey, Bella Budger. Remember that song? Anyway, my generation. So, and when you see an adult, when you see an adult talking like a baby, is to communicate with a child. I won't do my version of baby talk here. <laughs> so in the same way, Krishna comes. Why? Because he loves us, and and, and he, I mean, he can he can always act. He does act through his representatives, through saints and prophets and gurus and sons of God and so on. But he also he actually wants to come. He actually wants to come because, because we are His. We're part of Him. And the very fact that Krishna chooses to come, although it's not necessary, because just out of His love for us, He wants to personally come. And that's called the avatar. That's called the avatara. So if you study this ancient Sanskrit culture, there is always the language of crossing. For example, tara. Tara in Sanskrit means crossing. And ava means down, crossing down. So when a great soul, God or some other liberated soul, crosses down from the spiritual realm down to this realm to help us, that is called literally avatara, down crossing. 
That's what the word means, down crossing. And a holy place, a pilgrimage place in Sanskrit is called a tirtha, which means a crossing. From the same root, Tara and Tirtha. So again, God crosses down to us, and then when we get it, we cross up. We make the crossing to the spiritual realm and rejoin our eternal spiritual family. So, in this particular age, in this particular age, Krishna has come, the Lord has come. What's that song? Uh, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Music actually written by Handel, my favorite composer. But anyway, so uh, 522 years ago, let's update that, everybody. 522 years ago, Krishna came as Lord Chaitanya. And if we look at Lord Chaitanya's appearance, there are many very interesting things about it. For one thing, Lord Chaitanya came as a Brahmin, as a teacher, and really practiced nonviolence. When Krishna appeared 5,000 years ago, as you know, Bhagavad Gita was spoken on a battlefield. The world was a very different place thousands of years ago. But when Krishna came 522 years ago, he came as a Brahmin, as a teacher, and he was nonviolent. And uh, also, Lord Chaitanya said that this is, uh, that Lord Chaitanya is actually Krishna, but Krishna in the mood of Radharani. One point about this. I think one of the uh, signs of real spiritual genius in Vedic civilization is that from the very beginning, uh, it's understood that the absolute truth is both masculine and feminine. I mean, the world, it would be a very dull world if there was only one gender. And... uh, what do the French say? Vive la différence. Long live the difference. So, the idea being that he, although in this world, although in this world, between male and female, they talk about the battle of the sexes, which uh, I, I guess there are temporary treaties and then war breaks out again. But, <laughs> but despite the conflict or the tension in this world, ultimately, between a pure male and a pure female, there is a type of ideal complementarity. So that that when you have a, a noble and pure female and male, they each bring to a relationship an important part of reality. An important part of, of life. So there is something complete about this combination when it's done right in the right consciousness. And doesn't just end you up on some, you know, talk show or something. <laughs> telling your story. So, this male-female this male-female wholeness or complementarity, it actually comes from God. Because Vedanta says, the absolute truth is that from which everything is born. And so, the beauty of female-male female-male relationship also comes from God. Don't worry about the fact that I'm a sannyasi glorifying this male-female thing so I'm much too romantic to get married. (laughs) So, but actually, I mean, so, so there is, 
there is this supreme <coughs> romance. And when Krishna comes with Lord Chaitanya, it's actually Radha and Krishna coming together. So we have Radha Krishna. It's always ladies first. Radha Krishna. Radha is the supreme female. Krishna is the supreme male. So male and female are not, how should I put, they don't come from physical bodies. They don't come from E. coli and tadpoles and you know, coming out of the slime to evolve into human beings. That's not where it comes from. These are, these are powerful cosmic principles and beyond the cosmos that come originally from God and that manifest, inhere in, or manifest in physical things in this world, physical bodies. But these principles, the male principle, the female principle, in its infinite form, are found in God. And so you have Radha Krishna. What? Is that a hook? Okay. So, Radha Krishna, Sita Ram, and so on, Lashmi So, the amazing thing about Lord Chaitanya's appearance is, is it's Krishna in the mood of Radharani. We have Radha Krishna, the male and the female principle, together in one incarnation. Which should get some press in the postmodern environment. So, the idea here is that um, Krishna, it said that Krishna wanted to understand why understand the love of Radharani. When two people are in love, they, they, you know, they always think of things like, what does this person see in me? And, you know, I wonder what they see in me and why do they like me so much? Because you know, it's very flattering to think of why someone loves us. But um, Krishna wanted to personally experience Radharani's love. Now you could say that if Krishna wants to experience Radharani's love, why not just do it in the spiritual world? Like why come down to this sort of you know, strange place down here where people are not that spiritual. It's very materialistic. It's kind of a nasty place. Why experience the highest spiritual love in a very materialistic fallen world? Why would this be an appropriate place to experience it? So the reason Krishna chose to come with Radha together, with the, with the mood of Radha, in this age, is because people are so fallen in this age that it is Radha, the female counterpart of Krishna, with her infinite compassion, her infinite tenderness. It's in that mood that Krishna actually tolerates all the stuff going on and gives people another chance and, and saves all these very fallen souls. Because it's actually a way to glorify Radharani, that she is so kind and so compassionate that it is in her mood it is with this feminine, uh, this perfect feminine kindness that the incarnation saves the most fallen souls. So therefore, the mood of Radharani is an essential, is an essential key part of Krishna's incarnation and actually explains how so much mercy is being given. So, I mean, is that clear? Because sometimes, actually, there have been people who said things like uh, Krishna's real purpose in coming is to relish Radharani's love and the preaching, that's just sort of the external, which is actually absurd because if Krishna only wanted to relish Radha's love, he'd just, he just hang, he'd do it in the spiritual world. The whole point is to preach with that infinite kindness of Radharani because people are so infinitely fallen in this age. 
So there's an intrinsic, uh, necessary relationship between these two purposes of Lord Chaitanya's descent. Namely, to experience Radharani's mood and to save the fallen souls. They are inseparable purposes. Yes? Is Shramati Radharani Prakriti? Uh, is she Prakriti? She's the Para Prakriti, the spiritual nature of the Lord. Not the material nature. <coughs> so, any other questions? Briefly before uh, Vedasarga is violent? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, metaphysical, the Greek meta means beyond or after. So metaphysical means that which is beyond the physical. It may mean a, a moral principle, it may mean a spiritual principle, but it means that which is beyond the physical. So, I guess... Uh, anyway, so, I'll, I'll just finish. Uh, Lord Chaitanya is so... Chaitanya, of course, he was born as Nimai Pandit. He actually became Chaitanya after he took sannyas. So, we're really celebrating the appearance of Nimai Pandit, in a sense. And, uh, this very beautiful child that said even the celestial, celestial beings came to earth to see the child. And... Uh, it's, it's wonderful because in this Vedic literature, you know, just like now we talk about the earth as a global village, well, the Vedas give us a picture of the universe as a cosmic village. You get this amazing picture of a cosmic village. Even though there's so many planets, so many different kinds of creatures, there, there are more different strange kinds of creatures than, as I always say, than you'll find in the bar scene in Star Wars. <laughs> but still, I mean, ultimately it's a cosmic village because... It's all the family of, of God, of Krishna. And so Lord Chaitanya coming with, with this unfathomable love, this infinite love coming out of love for us to help us personally living in this world and performing activities, leading his teachings, empowering his followers, creating a movement to bring everyone the greatest happiness and to bring everyone back to their real eternal home. So it's... Uh, I mean, nothing could be more moving, nothing could be more inspiring than to see Krishna's activities, how he comes to this world. Vedasar just made, made a symbolic gesture which indicates that the lecture is over. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyway, thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. <laughs> Oh, Purnima Mahārāja Kīja, Gaurapurnima Mahārāja